Do you wanna play a game? Do you like scary movies? Do you wanna eat some brains? Is your chainsaw arm groovy? How bloodthirsty could a talking plant be? Eat your liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Come play with us forever, cause down here we all float. I never drink wine, so you're gonna need a bigger boat. Or a throat to choke, whether you're in the prim or dairy. Got red rum where your blood from, put your dead son in the cemetery. It's him or carry, be very afraid. You'll be our number one fan and get carried away. All working, no play, you know it always means you're in trouble, son. I came to chew gum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubble gum. What if Quint killed Jaws' his father? What if the Bob's body was marijuana? What if the leprechaun got a job as a bank guard? What if the Wolfman had a cowbell instead of Every Nars? scary movie made since Oscar Wilde was writing letters Had canon to watch them all and tell you how to make them better So put your earbuds in and forget what you're planning It's time to take our heads and shoot them out of a cannon 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 Welcome to Head Cannon. Tonight we have one of our favorite guests, just a wonderful, gentle, beautiful man, Mike Jeffers. How are you doing this evening? <laughs> oh, why, thank you. I'm doing good. Good. Awesome. Brent, how about you? How are you doing tonight? Good. We're both, uh, Corey and I are both wearing red shirts unintentionally. Yes. Sorry, it's our red rum day. Red rum day. It's interesting because Mike's, Mike's uh, Skype login name is red rum as well. Night. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of like the band ZZ Top, right? Like he's, we're, we're both wearing red shirts and like he's named red rum, but he's the only one like not wearing a red shirt, right? Like the drummer's the only oh, guy yeah. not with a beard. Yeah. 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 Like in France, are they called like ZZ Top? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I don't think they say Z in, in uh, France. Oh, shit. What's Z then? You, you're, th you're thinking of England. <laughs> oh, pardon me. <laughs> right. Oh, Z. Oh, Z, Z, top. Well, Mike, <laughs> let's talk about the movie you brought to us. It's, uh, it's a great movie. It's a classic. I'm a big Stephen King fan, so I was... Uh, and I've, wa I've watched this movie quite a few times, and I actually read the book uh last year maybe the year before at some point sometime since COVID hit COVID hit i reread the book so it's still kind of fresh in my mind uh but we're talking about 1980s the shining yeah so and i know you were going back and forth on a few titles what, what how did you land on the sh uh, the shining what made you land on that um well to be honest uh i, I haven't seen the movie in probably a decade uh you know i watched it a lot and I just felt like it was on your list. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to like, I didn't want to add another movie to, to your already huge list of movies. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, let's just, let's just do one that's already there. And I, I was surprised that you guys hadn't covered this movie yet. So let's, you know, like, let's do that one. Yeah. But yeah, like, like I said, I had never read the book. So I thought maybe you guys wanted to get real deep into the, the differences and, but if you know if one of you have already read the book, then fuck it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've I've read the book, so I'll be the uh, as we go through, I'll kind of I'll kind of point out you know what the differences are between the book of the mo and the movie. Um, 
Which... But as we all as we all know, Kubrick deviated from the book so much that in order like to have a, an episode comparing the book and the movie would take forever, or may, it may even just be useless. Really, right? Right. It's so it's so freaking different. It is it is different. I think there's some value in comparing them though. Actually, I think there's a lot of value in if nothing else, I, I think it really hinges upon like Kubrick's worldview versus King's worldview. Um I think really come through in in uh in their versions. And I think I think the only other Stephen King property we've done so far was one of our early episodes. We did the it we did a we did a big episode. This was a lot. We watched the it the nineteen ninety miniseries, and the newer it chapter one and it chapter two, and we compared all of those, uh, which that was a lot. But it was it was a fun episode. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I mean, uh, I'll just diving right into the 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 nerdy weeds of this. Yeah, uh, you know, K- King he he wanted to adapt the screenplay himself, mm. and and. Kubrick threw it out. He didn't like it, so he did it himself with a another author, um, Diane Johnson, and she never does. She, I don't think she's ever done another screenplay. Really, she's mostly just an author. Uh, she most of her books um, take place in France, um, where they have all those decorative letters, right? And and, uh, <laughs> and so I think he. he he got her because she she had like a gothic style to her writing, so it worked. But um, yeah, I guess I guess from what I read, the the, the script just changed so much that it, it got uh, Jack Nicholson. He was so infuriated that when when they brought him new pages, that he just threw them away without reading them because he knew that they were going to change again. That's wild. One and yeah. I'm trying to think. He didn't have any like dialogue intensive scenes, you know. Yeah. No. Yeah. It was. It was. It was pretty sparse. Yeah. But uh, it. It was good though. Oh yeah, it's so good, and it's. Yeah, as far most as like setting, act, setting that. Most of his acting was like with his face, with yeah. his facial expressions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Definitely. They like put him on the map. <laughs> and and he and and especially for a Stanley Kubrick movie and a movie from 1980. Both of those things, I feel like the movie is going to move at a little bit of a slower pace than maybe a movie made in 2022, right? And uh, I think Stanley Kubrick does a great job of, like, building the atmosphere and the tension and the sat Like, the music is, again, for 1980, like, this is, he's using tricks that, like, Christopher Nolan is pulling out in every movie now, you know? Like, Kubrick, yeah. Kubrick was doing that, like, 40 years ago. But I watched this with my 12-year-old daughter, and... You know, it's a long movie. It's a bit slow at times, but she loved it. She was, she like, she stayed, she was like, she was like, yeah, it was a little slow, but it was like interesting the whole time. And I, I you know. Like she, that intro, the intro, it's like they're driving to the Overlook in real time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it then, takes a while. And dude, that, that very first scene, and I knew this was coming, and this is maybe the first difference between the book and the movie I'll point out, but when when Danny, the boy, like, pulls out Tony, and he's like, hey, I'm Tony, right? Like, my daughter looked at me, and we fucking cracked up. She lost her shit. She was like, what the fuck is going on? Why is he, like, talking with his weird little finger? Did you also laugh? Did you guys also laugh whenever, like, he did it twice. There's two beats where, where um, Danny does this, where he goes, 
he's the little boy that lives in my mouth. Oh yeah, 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 dude, yeah. And, and, I thought that was so funny. Well, and ever since we watched this movie a couple nights ago, like Bella, my daughter and I, we've both been doing the tone. We'll be like, "Hey, Bella, welcome home from school," you know. And she's like, "Oh, goddamn it, Tony." <laughs> yeah, I I kind of saw it as like it's his, uh, you know, since he's a kid and he. He doesn't know what's going on with him. He has this power. So Tony yeah. is just like, it's just his way of, of dealing with it. Like he, uh, he, he's getting these images and these voices from somewhere and he doesn't know what they are. And so he, he basically creates this like imaginary friend thinking like this, this must be the thing that's sending me the images. You know, right. Whoa, yeah. he's like, He's giving he's giving like a personification to the power, yeah. Much like the way much like the way that humanity has done with gods, right? Yeah. Like we to explain lightning, we say that uh, a a god does it. Right. It must be Zeus throwing it throwing it from the sky. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I like that, and it's and the in the book the difference between the movie and the book. Um, he and I, and I understand why he did that for the movie, like made it into his finger. But in the book, it's like he has these like almost seizures where he has these visions. And Tony is a figure that he he always sees him like on the periphery or kind of in the distance. Like Tony never gets very close. He can't ever see him very well, but he always has these visions. And that's where Tony talks to him. And I'm pretty sure in the book at some point it it it, it says that. Tony is a version of him from the future, like sending mm. messages back to himself. Yeah, that's interesting. That's, yeah. I mean, that would, that would kind of make sense too. That, that ties in with, uh, Dr. Sleep in a way, right? The sequel. Yeah. Which I, I, I reread the shining so that I could read Dr. Sleep and then watch that movie. But I, I know a little bit about those, but I haven't read Dr. Sleep and I haven't watched the movie. So, Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting that it's the the Shining is never really. Um, I mean, in the movie, in, in Kubrick's version, the Shining is so it's so vague in yeah. what it is, and I I like that about it. I I like that. I mean, in Doctor Sleep, they they take it a little farther and they kind of explain that there's some people have more of it, but in the Shining, it's just sort of like uh, it's sort of it's so vague that like not only is it clairvoyance. But is it also like, uh, you know, seeing into the future? Yeah, sort of thing. Like, it's kind of it's it's weird. It, like, it takes on like so many different um, uh, themes and abilities for something so vague. And it, it's so interesting. The, the whole idea of shining, I guess, like a person shining, and then it's used so little in the movie. Yeah, that you're right. It's like it's it's novel. It, it's cool. Uh, but I was going back and forth on my rewatch, wondering like, is this good or bad that they're doing that? That yeah. they're not diving into it. <laughs> well, and it's weird for me, like watching the movie because in the book, the book uh, leans a lot more into The Shining as a power. Like, there's uh, the boy uses it a lot more. Like, he just knows stuff because he has The Shining, and he and the um, Scatman Crothers character, what's his name? Fucking uh, Dick. Dick, Dick Halloran. Dick Halloran. Like, they, yes, they, yes. they communicate a lot more. There's a lot more that goes on between Dick and Danny. In the book, there's, like, a long scene of them. They, they go to a car. They go to, like, a limo or something like that, and there's him and Danny are sitting and just ch chatting for, like, a long period.
period of time, like describing yeah. and explaining The Shining. Yeah, yeah. In, instead of being in the kitchen with the ice cream, yeah, they're in a car talking. And, and, and Danny comes back and his parents were like, hey, what were you doing in the car with the strange man for a long time? <laughs> he's like, he's he like, told me why he's called Scat Man. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. No. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But he, but yeah, and, and The Shining is interesting because Stephen King uses it in a lot of his books. Like a lot of his characters have The Shining, like in the Dark Tower series, uh, which is kind of his magnum opus it plays a big role. One of the main characters oh, is, cool. is very strong in The Shining. Um, and The Shining manifests in different ways with different characters across a lot of King's books. Cool. Did I have a question I had earlier? Did Stephen King ever write a, um, a screenplay of one, about one of his books? He did. He, uh, he, yeah. Yeah, he, he wrote screenplays for a number of them. I'd have to look up. Okay. But, but he also, I know that he, there was one movie he directed, which was uh, Maximum Overdrive, which apparently was at the height of his like alcohol addiction and, and coke addiction. And uh, apparently that was just a clusterfuck of a set. And there's, for anybody listening, there's a fun script you can find online called Maximum King, which was written by Shay Hatton. And it's a screenplay about about the making of that movie. And it's like Stephen King just being like totally coked up directing a movie. And his characters are like, his characters come to life and speak to him. And it's like, it's a pretty wild screenplay. It's a fun read. So he, he, uh, he wrote and directed maximum overdrive. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote, he wrote the screenplay for that too. Yeah. And I know yeah. he was involved. That one, that one was like a, that one was like a short story. Right. It was basically, yeah, I think it was called Trucks, maybe, but it was a short story because he yeah. got his start before he sold his first novel. He sold uh, a bunch of short stories, primarily to like uh, like Playgirl or Playboy style, like whatever you know, like nudie magazines. Oh, by the way, did you notice? Oh, interesting. Um, because oh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, just only because mine kind of goes with what Corey was just saying, but like when he first reaches the Overlook Hotel before his interview, he's like reading out of a Playgirl magazine. Like that was like at the Overlook Hotel, like on the coffee table <laughs> for the guests. Isn't that yeah. weird? Yeah, that's that's what I was going to, that's, that's what I was going to say. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's all right. No, we were both on the same, on the same track there. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's, and I that's... think they might have mentioned it in that documentary you were talking about, but this, but this rewatch, I was like, is that a Playboy? Oh wait, no, it's, Playgirl magazine? Like, it's a Playgirl. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. yeah just so start, weird. you know, starting a new job, waiting in the lobby, looking at pictures of dongs as you do, you know. <laughs> right, because is that, is, that's what Playgirl, right? Is, yeah. is It's it's uh, guys in there. I'm just, cu- I'm just yeah. curious. It's interesting. What a weird choice. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't know if he ever wrote for Playgirl, but that that is how Stephen King oh. got his start. He, like, uh, as, uh, again, to go back to the Dark Tower series, the first book in that series the gunslinger it was written as a series of short stories uh that was published in uh nudie magazines and 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 a lot of his a lot of his before he sold carrie uh that was a lot like that was what he how he paid his bills other that and being an english teacher (laughs) cool so uh right up top at the um the uh, the interview part uh, this this I think this is the first time I've noticed this but uh, one of the iconic images of The Shining are the twins right the yeah. twin girls 
and uh, you know very frightening imagery um so those were the caretaker grady grady yeah uh, grady those were his daughters that he had murdered uh almost 10 almost 10 years prior yes um the 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 guy uh his employer given the interview he mentions that they were eight and ten years old and i'm like not twins right is like that's like a weird little detail that i i just i guess i just never noticed until now but yeah they they're two years apart yet they're all they're like portrayed as twins dressed the same same height, look exactly the same. I think he would play. They act by like twins. the way twins would act. Yeah, but not twins. I don't. I don't know if that was like one of those weird, like deliberate things. Like, because people have analyzed The Shining so much, it's a puzzle to a lot of people. Yeah. So, like, was that deliberate or was that just like a continuity error in the script? You know. Yeah. And of course, like, you know, sisters, it's not going to be as frightening. <laughs> Two sisters dress completely differently. <laughs> right. I mean, I, you know, I mean, they could make it frightening, but obviously they went with the, the twin imagery. Yeah, which is creepy as hell, which works. It's very effective. Yeah. Yeah, it plays into, I, it's subconsciously. In my opinion, it plays into a lot of the mirrors. There's a lot of there's a lot of shots of Jack through a mirror. Yeah, you know, so I I think maybe it, it played on that a little bit as well. Right. Well, and then especially at the end when you get the red rum reveal that red rum is murder. You yeah. Know. yeah. 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 Well, and in this an interesting thing about that um, the interview scene is because one thing I remember vividly in the book is that. He, so anyway, so going back to uh, Stephen King, like he likes to, which is which makes sense. You write about what you know. He knows about writing. He knows about teaching English. So a lot of his a lot of his characters are writers. Um, and this yes. character, Jack Torrance, in the book, he's an English teacher who, uh, at one point in the movie, they, they they mentioned it a couple times where he popped Danny's arm out of the socket. He like dislocated his shoulder, right? Mm, yeah. And, in the book, I'm pretty sure he broke his arm. He just straight up broke yeah. his arm. And then the reason he's looking for a new job is because he was an English teacher. And there was a student who was... I don't know if he, he was fucking with his car or something. I can't remember. But basically, they got into a fight in the parking lot. And Jack Torrance, like, knocked this student out. He, like, he fucked this student up and got fired from his job. Um which is so he obviously has these recurring problems with like alcoholism and violence, you know. Um, but so the reason he's looking for a new job is because he got fired as an English teacher for fucking up a student. And then so he goes to this interview, and a buddy of his has set up this interview, and it doesn't go like it does in the movie. Like they, because in the movie, they like kind of hit it off, they're kind of buddy buddy. But in the book, it's like an adversarial. Uh, he feels like the guy's talking down to him and condescending to him. And he and Mr. Ullman do not get along at all at any point in the book. Right, because in the movie, it's like, you came highly recommended. And I was thinking, like, what are his qualifications to even do this? I mean, other than, like, just sit around, which I guess maybe he's good at. But ultimately, like, his wife ends up, like, 
messing with the boilers and you know like right. he's the one with like a notebook and doing tallies and things right. is there a is there a bill watson character in the book the guy that sits in on the interview there is and i feel like oh god it's been a while since i've read it but i feel like bill watson showed him i think bill watson shows him around the hotel without ullman i don't think ullman's there yeah he's i mean he's kind of the it's it's a you know i heard this in the the documentary and it stuck with me it's like whenever you go in for an interview whoever the second guy is they bring in for an interview that's the person you're actually interviewing for because that's the guy who who also does your job as well and that's what he was he was the summer caretaker right yeah well, and I th- yeah, I think that's the case in the book is that he he Ullman doesn't even go with him because and to kind of get a little bit in deeper into differences between the movie and the book, the boiler, the boiler is actually a huge deal in the book. And that that's like his main job in the book is to keep track of the boiler and make sure it stays where it should, like in the proper temperature threshold or whatever, so it doesn't blow up. Um, so Jack actually spends a lot of time in the basement with the boilers where he uncovers, he like comes across old and, and, and the, the hotel leads him to these old newspaper clippings and old stories about the hotel where it was like, it was a gangster hotel where the mafia, like there were murders there. There were, a woman was killed in a bathtub. Like there were lots of other stuff there. And so as he's going through these old papers, he's like, oh, I think this book I'm writing, I think I want to write a book on the Overlook Hotel. And so he calls Ullman and they have a conversation about it. And Ullman's like, no, you cannot write about the seedy history of the hotel. And, and Jack is like, fuck you. I'm going to write whatever I want. Fuck you. I'm out. And like, <laughs> yeah, you know, and in, in the movie, they kind of, he touches a little bit on that when, whenever, um, she comes in to bother him while he's typing and yeah. he's like, I just can't, He's got all these ideas, but I can't write anything that's good. And then he's then like immediately like the next thing he says is like, uh, you know, I've been having these thoughts like I've been here before, like around every corner. I know what's there. And right. I'm thinking like, motherfucker, write about that. You know, like <laughs> write about your experience. <laughs> yeah. Right. But that's cool that he doesn't. Yeah, he does that in the book. Yeah. Uh, um, going back to the uh, the. The time when he, uh, you know, he assaulted his son. Uh, that was another thing that that kind of stood out to me this time was the the discrepancy in time of of that. Wendy tells the story to the doctor about how he had been drinking too much and he grabbed him and, and pulled his arm out of socket. And then he tells her, you know, I'm I'm so sorry. I'll you know I'll never drink again. If I ever drink again, you can leave me. Yeah. And. And then she was like, and he hasn't touched a drop in five months. And you're like, okay, so so he's been sober for months. And then later in the movie, you realize that the incident with Danny's shoulder took place two years ago. Yeah. So so he so two years ago this happened, but right. he's he's just now five months sober. Yeah. So I, I that was the first time I picked up on that where there, there is sort of this, um, uh, I don't know, kind of abused wife syndrome. Even though he's, she's not the one being abused, but it's sort of this whole thing where, like, it, it took a while. He, he, you know, he said, "If I ever touch a drink, drink again, you can leave me." Yeah. But I'm surely he had been drinking for, 
you know, another like year and a half after that incident. Yeah. And they're still together. So it was like, an ultimatum, maybe. Like she I, finally got enough, got had enough of it. Yeah, it, you almost like you almost think like, were there other incidents bes- like that happened besides the the art? You know, pulling his arm out of the socket that they they never really like explained. But I don't know. I just I I found that just one of those things that like I had never noticed before, and it was just interesting this time. So there's yeah. there's a room there's room for like a montage. By the way, by the way, have you ever have you seen the um? There's like it's a funny thing that some, someone made like a, a trailer for The Shining, but they they did it to make it seem like it was going to be like a family comedy. Like they added, they added like they added like funny voiceover music. They're like they're like no. Jack, Jack Torrance just got a new job. It's really funny. You go find it sometime. But but no, is it that when his face comes through the door after he's hammered or after he axed it down? Like is it like that it st- it freeze frames him and is like Jack Nicholson? <laughs> There's, they just, they, I don't know, the cut of it is just really good. The, that sounds and good. the thing is, is, like, he, he made me laugh throughout this, there, I mean, yeah. it's not like a funny movie, but his, his, uh, acting in this made me laugh because it was almost like everything he said was sarcastic. Yeah. Like he had, he had no real emotional attachment to his family. And so every time he had to explain something to his family, he's just like, you know, the, the scene in the car where they're driving up there and uh uh so he says something about like resorting to cannibalism right yeah and oh they're she, talking about the donor like, party oh, yeah. yeah he's like oh don't you know don't mention that and he's like it's okay i cannibalism i know what it is they you know when people eat each other and he's like i saw it on the tv and jack's like see it's okay he saw it on the television yeah just everything he says is so like sarcastic and like yeah, <laughs> just like oh my god, I, you know, maybe maybe uh, maybe I should leave my family, sort of thing. <laughs> right? Yeah, which which I think that's the primary. So for anybody listening or anybody who's not aware, like, so this is one of the few because Stephen King is typically a pretty big cheerleader for any movie that's based off of his properties. That's based off of his books. Even shit movies, even movies that are terrible, he's still like, yeah, it's great. Go see my movie. This is one of the few examples where Stephen King disowned this movie. Like, Stephen King is not a fan of this movie at all, in any capacity. Yeah. I mean, Kubrick uh, takes a real subtle shot at him in the movie. Uh, there's there's a scene close to the end where Dick Howard is coming back. Uh-huh. He's, he came back from Florida, and he's driving down the snowy highway, and there's an accident. And you see that a semi-truck has crushed a red Volkswagen and in the book he drives a red Volkswagen but Kubrick changed it to a yellow Volkswagen in the movie so this scene of a semi-truck crushing a red Volkswagen it was kind of a subtle way of like you know that was your vehicle (laughs) right now it's mine I've I've destroyed it right made it mine now wow yeah yeah that makes sense (laughs) well and and I and I I've, I've read that they you know, during the making of this. And I think, I think Jack's character, also the wife's character, um, Wendy, she, in the book, she's a much more fleshed out character. She's a lot more, uh, well-rounded, you know, where in this, in the movie, she just kind of is like, uh, screaming most of the time in the movie. 
Um, but I also think their approach to Jack, because in the, in the book, Stephen King really he's he's a very deep character. And early in the book, you know, he shows love for his family. He shows love for his kid. And in the end, he's actually redeemed. Uh, he, he sacrifices himself to save his family. So instead of there's no there's no maze in the book. The hedge maze doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the book ends by so the boy like I said the boiler is a big part of the book. Jack is always down there like checking on the boilers and in the book he kind of redeems himself at the end cuz he goes down there to let the boilers explode and blow up the hotel and let his family escape. Um yeah, talk, talk about using a literative a literative device to ex, you know to represent a figurative uh, situation uh, right. you know things are boiling over right yeah yeah, yeah. no <laughs> and yeah they're like oh uh, how about a boiler yeah, yeah no That's Stephen King he, on the nose. he doesn't have much use for subtlety you know but uh <laughs> But so that's, I mean, and that's a primary difference. And I think that really speaks to the difference in King's view of the story versus Kubrick, because I've heard Stephen King has talked about how, I guess, Stanley Kubrick, they had, they had lots of conversations while he was making this movie, but I guess Kubrick called him late one night and was like, uh, Stephen King answers the phone. He's like in bed and Stanley Kubrick is like, do you believe in God? And, and King is like, uh. And in a lot of Stephen King books, he has a lot of criticism for organized religion. That's a recurring theme. But he does, Stephen King does believe in some kind of God, some kind of afterlife. So I guess he relayed this to Kubrick. And Kubrick was like, I knew it! And like hung up the phone. So I, th I think the difference is, King's version, there's like some redemption. There's there's redemption for Jack. Um and I think Kubrick's view is it's just much more cynical. You know, it's a lot more cynical than King's view of the story is. Yeah. Uh, hey, by the way, uh, you sleep in a you sleep in a king, a queen size bed, something I, like that. I sleep in Do a you? king. Yes. How about you, Brent? Yeah. A yeah. king size bed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you see this bed? You see this bed that Jack and Wendy are supposed to share oh. for like four months? Yeah. I, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure it was like a twin. Yeah, it's it's, it's, a, it's a super shitty bed. It's not big. I, yeah. I, I saw that and I'm like, well, yeah, of course this is gonna drive people crazy. <laughs> Why didn't they have like a suite? It was. It, they they referred to it as the caretaker's suite. Yeah, and the caretaker's suite. Okay. And they yeah, and they gave him this like little tiny ass bed. There's like an axe hanging over it. Or... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and then it, you know then. It, we cut like a month later, right? And he's he's he sleeps in. He's like sleeping until like eleven thirty. Yeah. Now he's like sleeping like later and later. Yeah. Uh, what? Which is it's funny because then like later when he has that heart to heart with uh, Danny, he talks about how he can't sleep. He's like, I can't sleep. Too much yeah. to do. Too much. Yeah. Well, it's and it's funny. Like in the book, he's it, it shows him like doing stuff. He actually he repairs something on the roof. There's a whole he. I think he reshingles the roof or something. And there's a, oh God, what, there's like a wasp's nest that he finds and he thinks it's dead. And so, and Danny really likes it. He thinks it's cool. So Jack lets him sleep with it. He like puts it in Danny's room. Whoa. 
And then, oh, okay. and then the wasps like wake up and they all wake up to Danny screaming and he's being like attacked by wasps at one point oh in the book. God. Um, and then, and then also like Jack is always down in the basement with the boilers working on them, like looking at these old newspapers. So Jack is like obviously working in the book, but in the movie, he's like, windy. like if there's any work being done, it's all windy doing the work. Like Jack isn't doing anything no. in the movie. Yeah, after that one month thing that you were talking about, Mike, like Wendy's like pushing the the breakfast cart down the hall. She like, gives him breakfast, and he yeah. eats so gross. He eats so gross. He's like, he's like, no, I would love it here, Wendy. And he's like, nom nom, like the, dipping the bacon in like the, you know, like the, 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 the egg. <laughs> yeah, which and, kind of and, sounds delicious, but it's the way that he was eating was disgusting. Uh, you guys catch when Wendy and Danny go into the uh, the maze for the first time and they're running up and you know she's playing around with him challenging him she's like oh let's have a race through the maze loser has to clean up america loser has to clean up america i didn't catch i, I didn't catch that line that's hilarious <laughs> i see there's there's a in the the documentary room 237 there one guy one of the the guys analyzing the movie uh, he goes deep into how there's there's a lot of like symbolism to American Indian genocide. Yeah, and yeah. and th- that line is like it refers to the the famous commercial of the trash being thrown at the Native Americans' feet and the crying. That was it was a campaign for um, was 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 it yeah keep America clean right yeah I remember that keep yeah. America clean was was the organization or that was their motto or their their slogan. So, uh, you know, that's, that's just one of those little subtle things. The like line was thrown in there to be like, like, Oh yeah, maybe there's some, you know, there's some symbolism here. I mean, they talk about it being a, an Indian burial ground. It, is that in the book? Was that like a whole thing in the book? Oh, I'm try. I don't think so. I don't, I don't know. There, there definitely was not as much native American iconography. And I, I don't know that it says at all. That it was an Indian burial ground. I don't think it does. I could be wrong. Okay. But 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 it's it's interesting. I just I just happened to be reading Pet Cemetery right now, right? Mm-hmm. Which yeah. The whole th- and Pet Cemetery was written years. When was it? It was eighty three. So it was written three years after this movie came out. And mm-hmm. the funny thing is, is pet the Pet Cemetery is built on an Indian in on an Indian burial ground. Where I don't yeah. believe that's true of the hotel, uh, the Outlook Hotel, Overlook Hotel. So that's that's King repurposing something that Kubrick did. Yeah, with well, the movie that he claims that he hates. He yeah. Well, and not only that, the the line uh, "All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy," right? Uh-huh. That's like his. That's not in the novel. That's only in the movie. But in Pet Cemetery, there's a line where somebody says, "All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy." So he's so Stephen King is referencing a line from Kubrick's movie in this yeah, book where he's like I I don't know I, I I I heard that the other day and I was like what the fuck that's so weird you know his 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 ego was too big to admit that Kubrick did something amazing with his fucking property yeah and he he doesn't he didn't want to admit it but it's you know he's making these references yep. Yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think that's true. And I, and I love Stephen King and I can understand why he has an issue with this movie. But it's it's a hor- it's a it's a great movie. It's a it's a horror yeah. 
classic. I mean, it's such a, it's as, as its own thing. It's phenomenal. It's great. You know, yeah. how, how about the shots in this movie? You want to talk about the, the, the cinematography? Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, these sets that he, that they built, like, for one thing, yeah, it, these were all interior sets that, that they built in uh, Elstree and mm-hmm. England, you know. Yeah. And so it, it's just it's this incredible like maze, and it it like you got you got the one outside and the one inside, and one you know one represents, you know one could represent like uh, subconscious and the other represents like the waking life or whatever, mm-hmm. but just like. The way that he set all this up for these shots is, is just so great, yeah. and I can I can see how, you know, like your your daughter, not not being interested like really in like the the story or what people are saying, but but would be interested in these shots because it's it's kind of like taking a ride. Yeah, you know, you're riding you're riding with Danny down these yeah. hallways. Yeah. Well, and the sound, and, the sound of that that um, that big wheel going over the wood and then hitting the carpet. Yes, the it's wood, like nice. Carpet, yeah. yeah, it's like that. That it's like that melodic sound of like a skateboard, like <laughs> going down a sidewalk. You know, like yeah, yeah. Well, and at one point, my daughter, she was like, she's like, so does he just ride his big wheel around in that in that building all day? I was like, well, I mean, yeah, like he. I know, would. Yeah, it's like he, he, there's only so much he can do, you know, so. Uh, and, and or maybe uh, go get his fire truck. That's right. like, <laughs> yeah. a, um, boys were uh, shitty back then. <laughs> a woman, a woman had uh, drawn up the the maps of what she thought like the uh, the hotel was, you know. Uh-huh. And there's there's the scene where he goes to meet uh, Ullman for the first time at his office, and the way that like uh, it's set up, this would be in the middle of the of the hotel, hotel. where his office is. But he has this like huge window in his office, looking out. You can see like the sun coming in through the window. Right. And this this woman had drawn up these maps, and she's like, "It is impossible for that window to exist." Right. I, <laughs> I, just, I just think that it's it's just it's such a puzzle. Like everything about this movie, it, yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. In that documentary, that room two three seven, they showed even when Danny was running in his or riding his big wheel, that the route he takes is impossible as well right oh, it's it just, it? yeah it, well, it's like when he's on the when he's on the bottom floor he's going around in a loop just a circle and they they it kind of like represents just like simple waking life and then he goes up one floor and he makes like a p pattern like a letter p and they're like i guess it could make sense but it's it's getting like a little trippy and then his third ride, when he runs into the twins, that's when the, he's just like, he's just kind of like going all over the place where it doesn't really make sense where he's going. And they're like, this has this has to like represent his like dream, like right. a dream world, you know. I, I just I thought that was interesting, but yeah, the like the the like the sound design and everything. And you notice we talked about the music a little bit. You notice like for me, for me, like the music to this movie kind of created a staple for what psychological horror movie music should be. Yeah. You know, not qu- not quite music, like just like sound. Yeah. Just like uh, you know like <laughs> skittering sounds or yeah. clanging or something. And at, at at one point 
like there are moments in this movie where there aren't where there isn't music like first instance that first ride that danny's going on but then at one point in the movie the music just it begins and it never stops then it's, it's just like sound and music like the whole time kind of like you know the way that you know the boiler is like you know all this pressure is building up yeah that's what the music is like doing yeah well i wish that would have been included more in the movie the boiler that's such a good idea yeah (laughs) that's clever that is that is a and and i I mean this movie is long as it is so that would be a lot to include but but it does it does add a lot like jack's uh the fact that he's always down with the boilers and the fact that he's like he decides to write his book and there's there's a lot more of him like wrestling in his mind like i'll write the book about this maybe i'll write the book about this and then he starts like uncovering and then it's really cool when he goes back and uh back to like the olden days or whatever when they're having all these balls and all these parties in the 1920s and the 1940s or whatever and you remember the scene where there's like um who is it wendy who sees there's like a guy in a dog costume like going down on another dude, you know? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, and the, the classic uh, blowjob scene. Classic. That no, yeah. That no one, no one really has any sort of explanation or analysis for that at all. Right. Like no one, no one really brings it up when they're when they're dissecting this movie, right. except for three jerks doing a podcast. Three, three jerks doing a podcast, and I'll and I'll let you guys know now. So that is that is something from the book, and it's actually those characters are fleshed out a lot more because as he's like he starts to read these old newspaper articles, and then he starts to like hallucinate and go back to the 1920s, the 1940s, like the old days of the Overlook Hotel. He sees there's like a, a character who has this. He's like in the middle of this ball. And he has a character, a submissive guy on a leash, and he's dressed up like a dog. And it's this character who's, like, happy to be this submissive dog. And then the guy, like, leading him around is a mafia boss. There's, like, a whole... Like, those are, those are like, fully formed characters in the book. It's weird. So they, they talk about the hotel as being, like, places have a shine. Yeah. And sometimes when, when yeah. bad things happen, they leave a mark, right? And so... You're, you're talking about a haunted house. You're talking about, like, uh, ghosts that have been wronged or ghosts that are, are just evil in nature or whatever. They they leave a presence in this hotel. The the thing about this scene is being just, like, it's just weird in general, this scene, right? Yeah. But I, the co- the costume is what makes it weird. You know, if it was just, if it was just uh, you know, a regular BJ happening, you know, whatever. But they, they put a guy in a costume, like, okay, now it's weird. Yeah. But... But my, my thought on that was when the it, the ghosts were finally revealing themselves to Wendy, you know, showing like people who had been uh, murdered or something bad happened. My thought was just like, well, I mean, what's wrong with kink? I mean, are we are we, are we trying? Is it trying to imply that kink is evil? I mean, right. I know this is nineteen eighty or whatever. Right. But well, yeah. I, well, no, I, I'm with like, you. Why? I don't, why? I don't know why this is a ghost. <laughs> Yeah, why are we why are we kink shaming these furries? You know. <laughs> yeah, I just thought it was weird. I didn't it think is, like, I mean, oh no, what, what were they? Doing? they They're sinning. Like, it, it was it was weird to to like for them to even just be there. Yeah, that, that was like the weird part of it. Uh, yeah. But I, I I love his use of like the uh, the quick zoom in. Oh yeah. That's, that's, that yeah. became kind of a, a 
another staple in like um, horror movies after this, you know. Yeah. The, the quick zoom to the, like the the scary part. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and there's a lot, uh, and it's funny that uh, apparently Stephen King claims that he didn't realize that this book was about alcoholism until much later, like years later when he gets sober. But the whole, I mean, the whole book is about, and in the book it's a lot more apparent, because you see in this movie he's like, putting back shots and the guy Lloyd Lloyd the bartender right he's like oh you're you you know your credit's good here your money's no good here have all the drinks uh like in the book he goes and like has these imaginary shots and then he he basically acts drunk it's like really getting him drunk and that's that's when he starts like fucking up and doing fucked up shit is when he relapses into his alcoholism even though it's imaginary, it's it's like ghost alcoholism, but it's really like he's reverting yeah. back. He's reverting back into his alcoholism, and that's when he really starts becoming a monster in the book. Yeah, but even though he's not really drinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though it's just imaginary alcohol, yes. Yeah. Have you guys? It's the house, the house uh, taking him over, right? Yeah. 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 And yeah, do you like talking about like his uh, his abuse and his alcoholism? Do you think that uh, the hotel just has, like, it, it craves people with a propensity towards violence and destruction? You think? Because obviously this, ho- this hotel has been around a long time. Bad shit's happened. The, the thing with Grady happened in yeah. 1970. Um, clearly there had been, like, other caretakers in between Grady and Jack. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, nothing ever happened. You know, there's no stories of them. So it, it think it. Yeah, I mean, it just kind of picks these people right yeah. that it wants. Yeah. And does it? Does the house only do it over the winter? And then, like these owners, these people that like are like, yeah, we're just going to leave you all alone here for the winter for five months. You know, like. <laughs> yeah. By the way, yeah. everyone who's ever done this job murders their entire family. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I was I was about to ask you if you guys had seen the uh, the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror parody of The Shining. Oh, it's been Probably. I have it's been a long time. I bet I have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it go? it's a it's a it's a classic one. They're they're like it's Burns Burns and Smithers are the ones hiring Homer to to take care of the hotel, sure. and as they're <laughs> as they're leaving, you know, Smithers is like, oh, shouldn't we have mentioned that every caretaker murders their family? And oh yeah, that's great. <laughs> Burns is like, oh, it slipped my mind. He's like, we'll tell you what. If we come back and they're all dead, I owe you a Coke. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's good. No, it's been a long time. <laughs> well, and, and I think I think the answer to that would depend on whether you ask Kubrick or King. Because I, I, I read that Kubrick almost sees, especially at the end when you zoom in on that picture of Jack Nicholson, right, in the 1920s or whenever it was. And he, he I think he kind of views it as like reincarnations of Grady and Jack Torrance being tested, like whether they're going to choose good or evil, and they choose evil every time, right? And then yeah. with Stephen King, I think it's more of, yeah, just that place. I think it's just a bad place, and anyone who gets near it. And there's actually um, there's a podcast called The King Cast, which everyone should listen to our episodes first, but then also go listen to the Kingcast. <laughs> they, they did an episode with uh, Glenn Mazzara, 
who's he's a, a television producer and a writer. He wrote for The Walking Dead a lot, right? Um, and he, so they talked to him because he actually produced a a pilot for Amazon based on the Gunslinger, the Dark Tower series, which that sounded amazing, but it wasn't picked up, unfortunately. And then he also wrote a treatment. Uh, what what studio owns The Shining? Is it Warner Brothers? Whatever. Yeah. yeah, Warner Brothers. Whatever studio it is, they were like, they were like, okay, we own The Shining. What can we do to make more money off this property? And one of the competing scripts was the Glenn Mazzara script, which was based in, it was like the early days of of the United States when there was like that westward expansion. And he almost described it as like. They, they almost did a version of The Revenant before The Revenant. And it was like these Donner Party type settlers who were moving out west. And they got established in the area that would eventually be where the Overlook Hotel was built. And it was basically this rich guy and his family. And all these like workers and indentured servants that were with them were like killed and slaughtered. And so somehow they survived. They brought more workers out and built like the first version of this hotel. But anyway, the script that he wrote would have been like, you know, the very first Overlook Hotel back in like 17 or 1800, whatever it was. It sounded really interesting. It sounded like a really interesting idea. Um, yeah. But that's cool. Um, they could have had like like the, the, the sprouts of the uh, of the maze. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you know, speaking speaking about the maze, it's funny in the book, it's uh, it's not a maze. They're hedge animals. I don't know if, yeah. you, if you saw anything. So, like, there are scenes in the book where they're, like, getting attacked by, like, lions that are bushes. And I got to be honest, it's a little, you're reading it and you're like, wait a minute. Okay, so this, like, topiary bush shaped like a lion is attacking them. You're like, wait, I don't, this seems a little bit corny, but. Yeah, ouch, scratches. Yeah, right, exactly. Please, <laughs> yeah. Please stop scratching me. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, because it, it would just, like branch you yeah. Of you. <laughs> yeah. you would just get branched <laughs> um, so I want to talk about the uh, if you guys don't mind I want to talk about the, the continuity um, errors in this that quote unquote errors because Kubrick does not do anything like uh, he doesn't do anything that isn't deliberate and I feel like he's he's too smart for these continuity errors to just be what they are. Right. So the first one, when Wendy comes in, uh, when he's, he's typing away and this is the the first time where he was like, well, you hear me typing out here, you know, leave me alone. I'm working. So behind him is a, is a chair and table. Okay. We get, we get cut back to Wendy, Wendy's face. She asked him something. We cut back. The chair and table are gone. Uh, he says a line, we cut back to Wendy again. Then when we cut back to Jack a third time, the chair and the table are there again. They're they're they've been like replaced. Right. And people people a lot of people like they chalk it up to like, well it's a continuity error, they shot this at two different times. And it's not. I really don't think it is. I think this is this is just part of Kubrick's puzzle. Uh-huh. This is just like instead of you mean like I mean, this this is a haunted house, right? Stuff right. moves, yeah. stuff disappears, you know. And there's another one. The typewriter, the first typewriter he's using is white, and then near the end of the movie, it's now dark gray. 
Really? I and, didn't notice that. Yeah. Huh. Um, there's, um, there, there's another, oh, when uh, Danny is playing with his trucks, when the ball rolls towards him, uh-huh. uh, the, the pattern on the carpet is facing a certain way. Then when he, he stands up and we get another shot of the carpet, the design on the carpet is going the opposite direction now. Really? Yeah. And, and like I said, I mean, I think Kubrick is too smart to, you know, for these to be errors in the editing. Yeah. But it all has to have like some sort of symbolism. And that's, that's why documentaries like room two, three, seven exist because people just dive into these things. Like they, <laughs> yeah. they become obsessed with it. They, they think this is, they have to analyze every little thing because like these are hidden messages that yeah. Kubrick is telling us. I mean, some of them, some of them are the other Kubrick documentary. I think it's called like Kubrick's boxes or something mm-hmm. like that. And it's about, no. it, they did it right after he died and they go to one of his storage sheds, man. And they just start pulling out boxes. And this, this psycho, I mean, he had like boxes of just like, possible sets or possible places to film pictures just like filled for just one scene really like three or four giant like file folder boxes you're right when you said these continuity issues like like he did things on purpose he had to yeah to make the audience easy or feel off yeah well and there's there's another moment where i think it's right after uh Danny hurts himself or well, no, where he has like the, the choke marks, the, the, yeah. the marks on his neck. Right. Mm-hmm. And then she, she blames him at first and then realizes that, you know, Danny tells her it's a woman, the woman in two thirty seven, And then Jack goes and, and interacts with the woman and comes back and tries to pretend like nothing's wrong. But so they have a conversation and, Oh, I think cause she says she wants to leave. She's like, I want to leave and get Danny medical attention as soon as possible. Possible, and he's like, You always do this. I'm not gonna let you fuck up my life, you know. And so like, yeah. he flips out on her, and then as he's leaving the room, like we're kind of the camera's in the corner of the room, as as Jack walks toward you, and then he moves off to his right toward the door to leave the room, and there's a brief moment where he obviously like looks directly into the camera, like he looks mm-hmm. he looks right at you as he's leaving the room and I like, it's such an odd choice, but it's like, like you said, obviously Kubrick did that for a reason. And I don't know why it is, but it's like, like, uh, yeah. Like Nicholson is obviously looking at the camera for a second. It's weird. Uh, There's another one. When uh, Danny's brushing his teeth uh, before they move to the the hotel and he's talking to Tony, the, the camera like pans forward and you see that he's got a bunch of stickers on his door, you okay. know. And one of the stickers, a very prominent sticker, is "Dopey of the Seven Dwarves." Okay. And then, and then later, after he has a seizure, and the doctor comes over and they takes a look at him, we get another shot of the door, and Dopey isn't there anymore. It's the only sticker missing. That's so and, weird. Yeah, people people have analyzed it as being like, this is this is uh, this is Danny's like transition from not knowing anything to now he knows everything. Right. And I don't know. It's just one of those like weird things. One of the, one of the the kookier things about this movie is that some people have claimed that, that Kubrick has hidden messages in this movie, um, admitting 
to his participation in faking the moon landing. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you guys have heard about this. That Kubrick, I've heard that theory, is yeah. Conspiracy theory that Kubrick filmed the, the you know, the fake moon landing. <laughs> and so there, there's all this, like, there's a lot of dumb shit that, like, people, like, look for in it. Uh, I, I will say that there are some moments, just tiny moments in it that are, that are just like, okay, I mean, if I was... If I believed in this and I saw these things, I'd be like, okay, yeah, maybe there might be something. Right. Danny, Danny wears an Apollo sweater. Apollo, oh, it's like an yeah. Apollo rocket sweater. I remember sweater. that, yeah. I couldn't wait for you to talk about this. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, key that's, the key that's sticking out of the doorknob for room 237, people have seen that like the, the letters on it are room and the word you know, the, the abbreviation for number in O uh-huh. and the O is, the O is really tiny. So the only letters that are really prominent are room and in, and then you, you mix those around and you get moon room like this, you know, he's trying to tell you like two, three, seven, two, three, seven was the, the studio where he <laughs> filmed where this is the moon room. He, this is where he filmed it. Right. Well, and you know, to, to give a little more credence to that theory, not that I believe it at all, but Kubrick did change the number in the book. It's room, uh, two seventeen. Two seventeen. Yeah. Yeah. And that gets, that gets brought up. That gets brought up to these, uh, conspiracy theorists. And they're like, they're like, no, no, that's a lie. You call, you call the hotel right now and they'll tell you that room two seventeen doesn't exist. <laughs> like, okay. All right. Calm down. <laughs> Oh man, that's hilarious. And and room 217, I don't know if I kind of feel like this became a big deal later in Stephen King's writing, so maybe it's not a thing, but the number 19 becomes a recurring thing in Stephen King's writing. And if you and so room 217 2 plus 17 is 19. I don't know. I don't know if that's an intentional <laughs> thing, but but the number 19 becomes very prominent in all of his work. So Oh man, yeah. I I mean, you, you go looking for numbers, and you're gonna find them. Right. I, I I just feel like that's that's just how it is. Like you 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 have the you have this thing that's already implanted in your mind that you believe. So you you go looking for the clues, and you're 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 gonna strain yourself finding them, but you're going to find them. Right. And yeah. you know what 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 can you do? It's <laughs> Well, yeah. well, with the number nineteen, I do know. Like later in his work, like he even in like his the, his magnum opus, the Dark Tower series, like they start to refer to a, a specific type of thing as going nineteen, right? When yeah. shit starts, yeah. to, and and he and he and I really think it was after he got hit by a van and almost died in nineteen ninety nine. It was like the nineteenth day of some month in nineteen ninety nine, and I really, I honestly think it was after that where the word 19 became a lot more prevalent in his work. And I, th- I think de- like developed a deeper meaning to him. And he was also 19 years old when he started writing the dark tower series. And it's, okay. so it's, it's the number 19 is textually a thing in Stephen King novels, but I don't know that it quite goes back to 1970. Whenever he wrote the shining, I don't know that it was a thing back then. I mean, it's, it's a prime number. And I know like people, People obsess over prime numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, that could be another thing, too. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, other like other people have analyzed that uh, this whole movie was a is a symbolism for the Holocaust, and that two you if you multiply two and three and seven, you get the number forty two, which nineteen forty two was the year that uh, you know the the Nazis like developed this system to exterminate the Jews, right? Mm-hmm. And like very methodically, like. Uh, you know, using like using data and bureaucracy, and right. the, the number and, and forty-two IBM, appear- IBM hardware. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The number forty-two appears on um, a woman's sweater that just happens to be passing by in the beginning of the movie. Uh, there's all these symbolisms of eagles, like the the typewriter he's using is an Adler, which is a German word for eagle. Uh, mm-hmm. There's like he's. Jack's wearing an eagle on a T-shirt at some point in the. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's one of those th- like I said, it's one of those things where people like look for these clues in it, and that when they point them out to you, you're like, man, there you know there might be something to that, right? But man, it's just it's so like, I mean, it, I I like if all these people have these different analyses of what this movie is like, is it all of them or is it none of them? Right. You know, is this is this movie a symbolism for the Holocaust or is it a symbolism for American Indian genocide or both? Right. Yeah. But I, I, I can tell you right now, it has nothing to do with faking the moon landing. <laughs> right. One thing we can be sure of is Kubrick didn't fake the moon landing. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love that. He could have. Yeah, well, and I think like whether conscious or not, like really good art, whether it's a book or a movie or whatever leaves it to where you can interpret it in a number of ways you know whether whether kubrick had the the native american genocide in mind or and or had the holocaust in mind like i think you know whatever it was whichever it was both or neither um yeah it's it's any good like really good piece of art you can kind of like lay lay lots of different things on that template you know yeah and speaking of great art uh, what do those the paintings of those hot naked chicks that Dick has up in his room? What what do those symbolize? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, that was such a surprise, and it was like so awesome. That dude is so cool and, and just so baller. <laughs> well, that's and and I gotta say, in that he's a great character in the book, and it talks about how he like he goes in the summer and works really hard at the Overlook Hotel, but then he has like he makes enough money to where he just like goes to Florida and chills yeah. all winter and like lives the good life for half the yeah. year. And I was like, man, Dick Halloran's got it figured out, man. You know, his his Florida house is pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. At first, I was like. I thought that it was another continuity thing because I, because I didn't really get that he was in Florida at first. Uh-huh. So I was like looking out his window, like where's all the snow? <laughs> but he real quickly gets to some snow, right? When he feels like something's wrong. Yeah. He's on a plane and then he's in the fucking snow cat. Yeah. Oh right. yeah. By the way that he's, he's flying into Denver during a yeah. blizzard. Right. Uh, I'm pretty sure that flight is going to be delayed. Right. I, yeah. I, I am really surprised that he made it to Denver in the middle of a blizzard. <laughs> yeah. 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 He was fortunate. Uh, yeah. He got in just right in time. Also, by the way, I, I made a note of this cause it, it's, it's just too funny, but, uh, there's like a, a news reporter that, yeah, he's, he's watching TV and the, uh, the guy talking about the weather, 
on the news. <laughs> His name is Glenn Ranker. And for some reason, that just made me think of all the, like, really funny, like, like news anchor names that you see in, like, sketch comedy. You know, like, Glenn Ranker just sounds fake. It just, yeah, it sounds like something from Mr. Show. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, oh, I saw something really funny today. Um, do you guys watch... I, I watch his YouTube clips. You know, John Oliver, he's got an HBO show. He used to be on The yeah. Daily Show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Last week, tonight, I think. Um, but um, he had a good one on um, the Ukraine today, and he showed... It's just uh, Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, you... Yeah, Ukraine. There's no, there's no... The... Ukraine, it's Ukraine, yeah. it's all of us. So, sorry, all Brent, right? what were you saying about the Ukraine? <laughs> Oh, my God. Um, well, he showed a CNN clip of CNN sh- um, having, like, a huge view of the city and, like, the bomb alarms going off, the, the, the missile sirens or whatever, like, right? Yeah. And then CNN, like, it, it's it, it's like their whole, like, border, you know, on, on the screen is CNN, the tickers going across, and they just, like, cut to a commercial like like abruptly after like the the sirens are going off and it's an Applebee's commercial and it's the one that's like that's right we like fried chicken on a Friday night a cool beer on time I think I saw that oh my god CNN was disgraceful (laughs) I am shocked right it was bad yeah. Oh no! Well, and there were a couple other things I wanted to touch on Uh, before we wrap up we should get into headcanons and and wrap up the show here but I I heard uh, at one point, I guess Jack Nicholson was an ex-fire uh, firefighter, right? Yeah. So when they had him like when they had him like hitting the door, like trying to get into the into the bathroom where Wendy was, apparently he he kept axing down the door too fast. So they had to like they had to tell him to ease up and chill out because he kept ruining the shots because he was just axing right through the door, no problem. So yeah, they had to put in like a real door. Yeah. To bust through. <laughs> yeah. You can actually do it. That's cool. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. And then I also, and this is just something, I, I don't know, I, I I didn't read this or see this anywhere, but it, but the the scene where um, Danny is hiding in the kitchen, like he he crawls in a, in a, on a shelf and like closes the door, right? And then Jack is walking, uh, like looking for him. It reminded me a lot of Jurassic Park when, yeah. when the kids hide. And I almost wonder if Steven, because yeah. I could totally see Steven Spielberg like lifting that, doing that as an homage and making it. Yeah, un- for sure. Like, I, I don't Jack know. Jack Nicholson's toe like clicks on the, <laughs> yeah. the only yeah. His big claw. The toe is like, where are you, Danny? Yeah. Danny. <laughs> but yeah, so I don't know. I haven't, I haven't That's what seen... I want to see. I want to see The Shining redone, but as Jurassic Park. Yeah. <laughs> Danny Torrens is our Velociraptor. I mean, yeah, those those guys were like were were big friends. I mean, uh, oh, yeah, a- AI That's AI right. was supposed to be a Kubrick film, uh, but his Ooh. like his his vision for it was like was too beyond like what could happen. He wanted to like build an actual like robot to play the kid. Yeah, and, uh, well, and, and <laughs> did he shit that was just like and people would just be like, yeah, we we can't do that. It's almost like he would like sabotage himself to get out of doing the movie. <laughs> well, and did and didn't he die too while that movie was in production? Uh, well, I mean, that movie had been on the shelf 
for a while. It had been an idea for quite a long okay. time. Okay. Yeah. And and uh, he, him and Spielberg also like, um, you know, they had they had both had ideas to do Holocaust movies. You know that uh, uh, Kubrick's was going to be called the Aryan Papers, and he he had been working on it for a long time. And then when uh, Spielberg decided to do you know Schindler's List. Then, like Kubrick was like, "Oh, that's totally fine. Then I don't have to do mine now." Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, I'll leave that to you. I'll leave that to Spielberg. Yep. That's funny, huh? Um, well, well, did either of yep. you guys, Brent? Did you have anything? Uh, either of you guys want to talk about anything else before we dive into head cannons here and wrap up? I was going to, but then I just recently put something I wanted to say into my head cannon. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, yeah. do you guys want to want to go first, or I can go first with my head cannon? Doesn't matter to me. Uh, yeah, I, I would like to say that if it was, if it was up to me, uh, we didn't, we didn't really talk about this a lot, but Shelley Duvall, uh, went through some hard times because yes. of this movie. Yes. Uh, yeah. she hated it. Uh, the scene where she had to walk down the stairs with the baseball bat was the most, in, it's in the Guinness Book world records of the most takes for a single scene she had to do it 127 times it stressed her out she lost her hair she had to go to therapy for years after this so uh my headcanon would be that she gets to bash Stanley Kubrick in the head <laughs> with a baseball bat and then he has to pay for her therapy bills yeah that's good that's great headcanon I like it <laughs> nice but and you want to go ahead <laughs> you want to go or you yeah. want me to go um, I'll go first I'll say and I heard that that, that, that Mr. Scatman um, got a job on like a Clint Eastwood movie afterward and it was one of his first appearances on uh, one of his first roles was The Shining and when he got to like the, the Clint Eastwood movie he, he was crying because he was like oh I just had to do the two takes I'm done <laughs> and he, really? he cried he cried yeah wow <laughs> Yeah, I've got a couple head cannons. I thought about if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, the the first one was I thought it'd be funny if um, um, Tony and Danny's finger was was actually Tony Danza. <laughs> Tony Danza lives in Danny's mouth. He's like, Mona, we got like twenty seven steaks and forty two pot roasts up in here. <laughs> nice. I love it. That'd make the movie infinitely better. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought that. After the movie, my my next hand cannon is is a is a is not a sequel but an extension, right? Like a prologue. So Wendy, right? She moves on with Danny. Um, they move to an old port city with her burger obsessed cousin Wimpy, where she eventually marries a war hero named Popeye. Yep, yep, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> She's dressed just like that character in this movie. She's olive oil. <laughs> is she? Well, yeah. She have, she plays olive oil in Popeye. A year later. A year later. Really? Which is which is they a great role. She's great one. in that role. <laughs> nice, nice. All right. Well, my head cannon is uh, and I, 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 like I said, I haven't read Doctor Sleep. I haven't watched the movie Doctor Sleep, so I know that it takes it. It talks about Danny later in life. I do know that much, but I don't know what that is. So my idea is that. Later on, years later, Tony, his finger, becomes a world-famous psychiatrist, right? A child psychiatrist. And he's like, tell me, children, what do you, how do you feel about your mother, right? 
So his finger, his finger's like always writing these like papers that go in like psychiatric journals and is on like CNN and it, like his finger's always on the news getting interviews. But like Danny, Danny's like an alcoholic drug addict. Like Danny's like in a bad spot. So Danny's always like, fuck you, Tony. Don't tell me what I can drink and can't drink. I'll do what I want. And he's like, come on, Danny. I've got to be on Good Morning America. You've got to get up. So I want to see a movie where Tony is a huge success and he has to drag the drug-addled Danny along with him uh, through his life. That's what I want to see. Yeah, man. There's going to be like like, uh, tight shots of just the finger, like a worm, like pulling Danny towards like the closet to get ready. Yeah. Just like pulling the collar of his shirt. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, like physics don't really. Yeah, that makes sense with Kubrick. Yeah, yeah like <laughs> the like the, the thing from Adam's family. Like, sure, it can just drag him. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's that's my headcanon is the is the Danny and, and Tony show. Nice. All right. Nice. Like <laughs> nice. Trying to trying to sell the world on that auto hypnosis is a real thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a yeah that that whole scene. Oh man, and the scene with that. What the social worker, whoever comes to their house and says all that stuff, and then Wendy's like, uh, "Oh, she's just like nonchalantly like, oh yeah, you know, Jack came home, he'd been drinking, and he just like jerked his arm with a little too much force and kind of dislocated his shoulder, but you know, these things happen." And the woman is like, "What the?" F-? She's like, "That's fucking hardcore child abuse. That is not okay, you know." And Wendy's just like, "Well, it's just one of those things that happen, you know." And then I like the side of that when when jack is telling his story to the bartender he's like it's like one more pound per square inch per square inch right and it would have been the, yeah the bartender's like you know yeah well and, and it's be, be like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> well and i have to say that's one of my favorite stephen king does that a lot in his villains where they like they do terrible shit but then you get their inner monologue and they, they're always the ones that feel victimized. Like they're the ones that have been wronged. Society doesn't understand them. And like, I, Oh man, I love that he do. He does that. Cause I feel like that's so true with people who do yeah. terrible shit. Like they tell these stories to themselves where they're the victims when they're clearly the ones who are like doing terrible shit, you know? Well, yeah. And reading about Jack Nicholson in that scene where Wendy comes in to bother him while he's typing, that's, Jack Nicholson kind of improvising his own previous experiences with, with ex-girlfriends where they've done that to him. Really? Well, directly the line, and you can you can maybe um, tell me if I'm wrong, but what I read was that, like, even the line where he's like, if you if you hear me not typing, still do not come in, you know? <laughs> right. And that was, like, something that he had experienced himself saying. Something that he had, he had said to girlfriends or they had said to him? Yes. That he had said to them, like, oh, don't wow. come in. Yeah. And, I, man, and I, like, I've been in that space before. I've ne- I don't think I've ever, like, said the shit that he said. And I've, I've, I don't think, no. I like to think I've never been that big of a dick. But I've definitely been, like, working on shit. And, like, you know, Shauna or the kids will come in and I'm like, God damn it. Like, ah, I'm fucking doing something, you know? But what you're doing is a little more, like, tangible, Right? Like, you're making numbers go places from your house. Well, well, no, that's the thing. Like, for both work and, but but also for writing, honestly. Like, for creative stuff as well, where I'm like, you know, doing it and I keep getting distracted and I'm like, motherfucker! Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's totally relatable. 
it's, it's, it's behind you somewhere, right? <laughs> nice. Well, all right. Well, is there anything else y'all want to talk about? Yeah. Uh, Mike, do you have anything to plug? Is your is the Saturday Night Live podcast coming up uh, soon? Uh, yeah, we released our first episode. The show is called A Star is Worn. Nice. Uh, I remember you, you were troubleshooting that name. That's cool. Yeah. I like that name. Uh, it'll be it'll be like a Monday show, and we're probably going to do it every other week. Um, new episodes yeah. will come out. It's it's just a, it's a podcast where we just talk about uh, the movies of Saturday Night Live, and we do them in chronological order. So Blues Brothers is the first one. Nice. Uh, Wayne's World will be coming out next week, and then I also have a weekly podcast where we talk about the albums of 1972 uh, because they're all celebrating their 50th birthday this year, and there's a lot of good ones. Uh, The reason why we picked this year is because there's, I mean, there's a ton of great albums that came out that year. So that's a weekly podcast. It comes out on Fridays. That one is called Half a Cinch. Centuries in century right yeah. nice um and then i also contribute to a, a music blog called uh, postcard elba it it was on hiatus for a while but now it's back and yeah it's cool just go there if you want to check out some new music and uh read some good reviews about it nice and that's it awesome Hell yeah. cool well thanks again uh mike for coming on thanks for bringing this movie i Always love talking about King, love talking about Kubrick, and and everybody, thank you for listening. This has been Headcanon.